Well, we are in Matthew 5 this morning. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, that first book of the New Testament in the fifth chapter. And let me start us off by thinking a bit about world religions. Leaders of various world religions have come and gone. And the origins of these religious leaders and their connections to religious ideas of the past have varied. They have varied. Some sort of come out of nowhere, meaning they kind of invented a religion from the ground up. They didn't suggest that their religious thoughts were within some great tradition or inherited or built on anyone else's thoughts. In fact, some were quite happy to say that everything that came before was hogwash and what they had now What they had to offer now was the real deal. So, for example, Buddhism has this kind of history. Going back to Siddhartha Gautama in the 5th century B.C. But other religious leaders were conscious of the fact that they were building on an existing foundation. They already had a holy book, you could say, that they understood to be the sacred writings, even if they would also then receive new divine revelation, giving them additional holy writings. And in this vein, we can think of the origins of Mormonism. Joseph Smith believed the Christian Bible. He also claimed, though, that he'd been given new revelation in upstate New York called the Book of Mormon. And to this day, his followers believe that the Bible, our Bible, close anyway, and the Book of Mormon together make up their holy writings. Now, as a non-Mormon, I personally have doubts whether the Book of Mormon and the Christian Bible are all that compatible If you think, well, who are you to say that? Just read them for yourself. You you can decide. But it was one attempt to start something new, building on something old. Something similar could be said about Islam. Muhammad believed parts of our Old Testament, like the first five books in the book of Psalms. He also believed that Jesus was a legitimate prophet, a prophet of God. And yet, he believed that God gave him new revelation through the angel Gabriel. It's called the Quran, of course. And so, Muhammad and Muslims still today believe that the Quran is the culminating final revelation within a tradition of previous prophets like Adam and Abraham and David and Jesus. Self-consciously, Islam is a religion claiming ancient roots even while it took a rather sharp turn in the 7th century A.D. And then we come to Christianity and Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. He affirmed the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And as Christians, we call it the Old Testament because we believe now there is a New Testament. And that New Testament stuff 
has been written down about Jesus because of Jesus, unpacking all that Jesus is for us and all that his coming and dying and being raised means for us as his followers. So clearly, Jesus was not the kind of religious leader to presume to bring a teaching out of nowhere. That's why Matthew begins his book with a genealogy that stretches back over a millennium. Jesus has history. He's got roots. But was Jesus just another prophet like Muhammad or Joseph Smith, who I would argue rather sloppily slapped on some new teaching, which is not very consistent with the scriptures that they claim to also affirm which came before. Well, we come to a passage today in Matthew 5 that I think is the clearest in all the Bible to tell us how Jesus relates to the Old Testament, how he relates to what came before what Jesus himself thinks of the Old Testament scriptures. And it shows us that he was unapologetically and authoritatively offering a new word from God. In fact, we're going to see that Jesus attests to something so profound, so radical, so unique... In short, he says that everything that came before him in the Bible was about him. And no leader of any religion, no founder of any world religion has ever made such a claim. Look on with me. Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus says. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever claims them, uh, does them, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we'll actually go all the way to the end of the chapter before we're done this morning. But these power-packed verses of 17 to 20 will get us through the first couple of three points, three headings that I have for us this morning. Here's the first. Jesus affirms the Old Testament. He affirms it. He affirms it by putting the matter in the negative or or with a denial. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And repeating himself, I have not come. To abolish them. The law and the prophets was a common way in Jesus' day of speaking of the whole Old Testament. Sometimes we find the phrase uh, law, prophets, and the Psalms. That would be another way to designate the whole of the Old Testament. 
So what does Jesus think of the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets? What's his approach to the revelation of God that came before him? Well, Jesus states emphatically, he's not come to abolish it. In other words, to destroy it, to undo it, to dismiss it, to ignore it, to do away with that which it intended to be and to do. Now, why did Jesus feel the need to make such a statement? I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament. I mean, wasn't that a given? Was anyone really wondering? Well, maybe. Remember from a couple of weeks ago, we looked at those beatitudes, those statements from Jesus that all begin with blessed. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. If you were with us, you might remember me pointing out just how radical it was for Jesus to speak like that. The prophets of old, the Old Testament prophets, they spoke of God's blessings and curses, but it was always God's blessings and God's curses. All the prophets of the Old Testament always began their oracles with this formula, thus says the Lord. And then they spoke. They announced who they spoke for. Well, Jesus doesn't follow that old formula. He doesn't speak on behalf of God. He speaks as God. He speaks directly. Moses, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, remember at Mount Sinai, he went up on the mountain to receive God's commands and then brought them down to the people. But Jesus is no mediator like that. He went up on the mountain and just spoke. He said, who was blessed. He determined and prescribed the blessed life. He spoke divine blessing upon a certain kind of people. And the astute listener hearing him for the first time would no doubt be thinking, who does this guy think he is? And indeed, that's how the sermon ends. At the end of chapter 7, the crowd was astonished, for he taught as one with authority. So the question may have been in the air in these days. It may have been on people's lips. How does this new preacher relate to what came before in God's story? The answer, he is pro-Old Testament. He's for it. He's a pro-Bible guy. He's not balling it up and throwing it in the trash. He didn't come to dismantle what came before he certainly didn't fly in out of nowhere with some newly concocted religion that he invented. And that is why Jesus' followers must be Bible people. Because Jesus was a Bible person. In fact, he was the best Bible person of us all. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we must follow him in this regard. We're pro-Bible. We're people of the book. Now, sadly, there are some people today who go by the name Christian who pick and choose from the Bible what they want to believe. Just to pick on one particularly dangerous version of this, one that is represented fairly well in our city, 
There are mainline Protestant denominations, some who go by the name Methodist, some go by the name Presbyterian, certainly not all Methodists, certainly not all Presbyterians, but some who gut the Bible of its miracles, who deny the resurrection of Jesus really happened, who deny that the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant word. And they still go to church. They go to church for their fancy buildings and because they love tradition. But they deny the nuts and bolts of the very Bible that Jesus loved and affirmed. And you can't have Jesus and deny his word. And so brothers and sisters, we must not only be Bible people, but whole Bible people. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament and so should we. And that's why at Desert Springs Church we preach from an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book. And when we're in an Old Testament book, you might have noticed we eventually get to the New Testament. When we're in a New Testament book, chances are it's showing us something that was hinted long ago in an Old Testament passage and we'll point that out too. We want to be whole Bible people. That's why even our children's resources, like the, the story Bibles that we recommend and try to push into your laps, well, they are whole Bible storybook Bibles. We should be. Jesus affirms the Old Testament. Secondly, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He fulfills it. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. What's next? But to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. What does that mean, to fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, some have suggested that Jesus means that he came to confirm the Old Testament. To reestablish it. Well, but the word fulfill, it never means confirm, especially in Matthew. Others have suggested that Jesus came to clarify what the Old Testament law really taught all along. Well, but the word fulfill doesn't mean clarify either. Now, the word fulfill, especially in Matthew, means to accomplish what has been anticipated. There's something in the old anticipated, and now it has begun to be accomplished. To fulfill is to fill up. It's to complete what had been foretold or foreshadowed before. In fact, that's how Matthew has been using this word fulfill, a word that he has loved so far in his writing of this gospel according to Matthew. That word fulfill happens a lot in Matthew 1 through 4. And Matthew keeps using the same formula in each instance. An event in the life of Jesus is recorded, immediately followed by a phrase like this, that happened to fulfill what was written, followed by an Old Testament quotation. 
That's what the word fulfill means. Jesus is doing it. He's doing what was foretold and foreshadowed. Jesus will later say in Matthew 11, get this, he'll say, all the prophets and the law prophesied until the time of John the Baptist. He was the last prophet of the Old Testament era, you could say. He was the forerunner to the Messiah. The law and the prophets were prophesying until John. And then the kingdom of God was at hand. Or as Jesus will put it to his disciples after the resurrection in Luke 24, he'll say, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Written about me. It's all about me. Some parts were pointing to him more directly, more obviously than others. But all of it was pointing ahead to Christ. The prophets were foretelling different angles of his coming and what he'd be like. And the law didn't exactly foretell so much as it foreshadowed in various ways what his coming would be like. But it was all pointing ahead. The Old Testament is one giant arrow pointing ahead to Jesus. So really the question then is not how does Jesus relate to the Old Testament scriptures, but how do the Old Testament scriptures relate to him? He's the new referent point. He's the center of it all. Again, realize how radical that was, how radical it would sound to those first hearers. It would be radical if Jesus said, I have come to give you the authoritative interpretation and application of the Old Testament law. You see, the, the teachers in Jesus' day were obsessed with Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this. They had no opinions. They just collected opinions. It would have been bold for Jesus to say, I have come with the authoritative interpretation and application of the law. It would have been bold for Jesus to say, I have come to obey the letter of the law perfectly. I'm the first one ever. I've come to obey it. He didn't say either of those things, though, did he? I mean, both are true. Jesus can and did teach the perfect interpretation of God's ways, and he did come to fully obey the law. But Jesus says here that the whole Old Testament is fulfilled in me. No world religion has anything like that. A guy who didn't come out of nowhere, he's part of the plan all along, but he's the centerpiece of it. He's not a mediator of it. He's not a transitional figure. He's not integral. He's it. He's everything. And he's not done. He's still at it. He did accomplish much already. His life, death, resurrection, giving us the Holy Spirit, the, the birth of the church, the spread of the gospel in the world. And he will fully accomplish it all at the end of time. See verse 18 
truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, that's the end of time, not an iota, that's the smallest of the Greek letters, not a dot, that's the smallest mark within the Hebrew letters, not an iota, not a dot will pass away until all is accomplished. Christian, this tells us how to read our Bibles. This tells us what kind of Messiah we have. This puts before you, if you're not a Christian, a stark, firm fork in the road because this guy's either insane or he's God. And it gives us who follow him a strong encouragement that he will accomplish all that God's plan and God's kingdom has ever foretold. Now, thirdly, Jesus goes beyond the Old Testament as well. He goes beyond the Old Testament. Now, this is the longer section of the rest of our chapter, and it really fleshes out what Jesus has already taught in principle in verses 17 to 20. So, they're not equally uh, spaced out halves, but these are two main parts to our passage. 17 to 20 are something like the principles, and then in the verses that follow, Jesus offers six examples, six ethical test cases, verses 21 and following. They aren't exhaustive. He certainly could have given more like examples, and indeed, maybe his sermon actually included more examples than is recorded here. The Bible often records sermons in sort of a cliff notes kind of version. But Jesus uses the same formula to introduce each of these six examples. You can just look down in your Bibles and see for yourself. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said, and then he quotes the Old Testament. Verse 22, but I say to you, and then he teaches something more or something else. Well, that gives you just a few things to watch for as I now read it for us. Let's read. We'll back up to verse 20 because I think verse 20 introduces this section. Let's read the rest of the chapter starting in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus goes beyond the Old Testament here. He doesn't abolish the Old Testament. He does fulfill the Old Testament. And now as the fulfillment of the Old Testament... He is the one who can now take God's expectations of us to another level. He takes God's expectations more upward and more inward generally than what came before. Now I have to acknowledge that the most common interpretation of these verses I just read is that Jesus is here correcting the traditional misunderstandings and abuses of God's law. And indeed, we know that the religious leaders like the Pharisees, they did misapply God's commands. They did wrongly externalize their religion. They, they were selective at times with God's commands. And no doubt Jesus later in Matthew goes on to correct the religious leaders of his day for their hypocrisy and their mishandling of God's word. But is he doing that here? Is that all he's doing here? Is he merely clarifying the Old Testament laws? Well, even though some of my favorite biblical scholars hold to that interpretation I personally don't think it fits best with those key verses that came before, 17 to 20. In my opinion, 
Jesus has not set us up to think that he has come merely as a clarifier of the Old Testament. Also, when Jesus offers a quote in these six examples, remember that formula, you've heard it said, then a quote, but I say unto you, every time he gives a quote, it's almost always directly from the scriptures. Except for only one possible phrase in the very last example, we'll come to that, all of the quotations he gives are from scripture, not from some aberrant rabbinical teaching. Jesus is not doing away with the Old Testament, but remember, he's fulfilling it and he's filling it out. He's filling out God's expectations for his kingdom citizens. And in each case, he is advancing what came before. He's heightening what came before. Or he's deepening, depending on how you want to imagine this. He's raising the stakes and raising the expectations. Taking things deeper to a more inward level. I think that's what he's getting at with verse 20. Read that again. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees weren't thought of generally as the bad guys. We Christians are sort of trained to think of them as the bad guys because they're often Jesus' opponents. But in Jesus' day, at least with his first audience there hearing this for the first time, they would have thought of the Pharisees as the real deal. The guys who really cared. The guys who were really committed. They were doing what the rest of us should be doing if we really cared as much as they do. They were the tone setters for Jewish culture. They were the real adults in the room, you could say. And so shockingly, Jesus says, that to enter the kingdom of heaven, to not go to hell, your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees. He says their kind of righteousness, even to their unparalleled extent, won't cut it. They won't get in with that stuff. And so we need not so much more righteous deeds than they did. You probably can't. You certainly won't. We need a different kind of righteousness. And it's from that that Jesus offers these six snapshots, these examples. And let me just go through each of them. Yes, I know you're looking at your watch. You're saying six more, looking at the verses. We'll cruise through these. We don't have the time to fully apply each of them. We don't have time to clarify all that Jesus says under each of these examples. And really, in some ways, that may actually miss the point. If we made this a sermon series, one of these six examples per week, we'd kind of miss the forest for the trees, wouldn't we? So while we won't try to answer every question that could be asked about these examples, we want to see enough in each of them that we keep our finger on the primary point. So look down, follow along in your Bibles. With this first example, 21, verses 21 to 26, regarding murder, 
and anger. You've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And he goes on to say that the same is true for insults, even calling someone a fool. The commandment quoted is the sixth commandment of the ten. You shall not murder. But then Jesus pinpoints what's actually behind murder. He pinpoints where murder starts. It starts in the heart with hatred, anger, and insults. It starts with something uh, as simple, as common, culturally acceptable, as saying, that guy's an idiot. Quite convicting to us all. Jesus says that the punishment warranted for murder, death, also applies to those unseen, culturally acceptable, quite common things of anger and insult. Jesus' kingdom people must be a people who fight sin not only on the level of actions. And by the way, murder still is sin, okay? Don't remember, he's not abolishing. Murder is still sin, but, but there's also the level of the attitudes. That's true religion. True religion isn't don't kill a guy who bugs you. It's be nice to him. Second example, verses 27 to 30 have to do with adultery and lust. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Here Jesus quotes the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But then he pinpoints what's actually behind adultery. The lustful gaze. That's where all adultery starts. But Jesus is not only concerned that our lust could lead to idolatry or adultery. He says even more, lust is heart adultery. Now, yes, the Old Testament many times warned against lustful eyes, against coveting your neighbor's wife, that's the 10th commandment, but no fair interpretation of the 7th commandment can include lust. It's just not there. The same goes for murder. The 6th commandment doesn't say don't murder and don't hate. It just says don't murder. Jesus is taking things deeper more inward. Jesus' kingdom people then must be a people who fight their sins not only on the level of physicality and touching, but also on the level of where they look and what they think and how they think about those created in God's image. Jesus goes on to use hyperbole when he says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That's hyperbole. He doesn't really mean pluck it out. 
I mean, after all, if you've already seen images of, well, graphic images, let's just say that, you cannot have eyes and you can still think of such things. Jesus is using hyperbole. But remember, hyperbole is exaggeration for a point, right? It's not just exaggeration. It's exaggeration to make a point. And Jesus is making the point of how serious this matter is. Third example has to do with divorce. Verses 31 and 32. We can't take the time this morning to unpack a whole theology of divorce and remarriage. What Jesus is getting at here is that in Deuteronomy 24, Moses allowed men to divorce their wives as long as they did the paperwork, a certificate. Jesus would elsewhere later on explain that it was because of the sinfulness and hard-heartedness of the people that Moses allowed for easy divorces. But Jesus now insists that only when the marriage covenant has been broken by something like adultery can someone biblically divorce their spouse. Now the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7, that abandonment of a, of a spouse by a non-Christian is another legitimate basis for divorce. And physical abuse is probably a kind of abandonment. But in such cases, abandonment, adultery, abuse, the point is the same, that the marriage has already been ruptured by the other. And otherwise, Jesus expects marriages to stay together. He expects us to keep our commitments, even when it's challenging. Fourth example has to do with swearing and oaths, starting in verse 33. You've heard it said, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by some other things. Now here, Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.12. It says, you shall not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord. In other words, if you swear by God to do X or Y or Z, but you have no intention of doing it, you only swore by God like that so that people would believe you. You need to do that because you're not very believable. Well, that's what Leviticus 19.12 had already established. But Jesus says, don't swear by anything like that. Don't swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your head. You see, people in Jesus' day thought that they could avoid sinning against Leviticus 19.12 by swearing by something other than God. And so, here's, here'd be just one silly example. By Jerusalem, this ox cart is the best ox cart you can find in Judea. Jesus says, don't do that. Instead, be known as a person who tells the truth so consistently that you don't need to make an oath 
to try to prove to people what you really, that you really mean it this time. Now, Jesus was not here forbidding the signing of contracts or swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth in a court of law or of making marriage covenants or of us as a church covenanting together in fellowship as we do. No, what Jesus was forbidding is swearing by something precisely because we don't have credibility in order to get credibility. Brothers and sisters, are we people who are truth tellers? Are we people of our word? Do our friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members know it? Is it a given because it's proven? In such cases, oaths are not only not needed, they're forbidden. Fifth example, verses 38 to 42, has to do with revenge. You've heard that it was said, quoting Exodus 21, 24, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. The Old Testament allowed for a level of revenge. It certainly limited revenge, but it allowed for revenge. In some ways, it was simply justice. This law, Exodus 21, 24, was essentially if you kill my cow, you got to get me a new cow, right? A cow for a cow. And that meant that I can't kill you because you killed my cow. That's not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You kill my cow, get me a cow. It limited vengeance. That's all fine and good. That's right. But Jesus gets to the heart of harm and insult in our response to it. Is it really about justice? Or is it about me? Is it only about me? Is it only about my reputation? What they did to me? How they made me look? And that's why he uses that example of the slapped cheek in verse 39. That wasn't merely an issue of physical battery, but of insult. What do you do when insulted? Do you feel the need to pay back the insult? Are you an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of person in your relationships, at work, with your family, in your neighborhood? Christ's disciples must be radically selfless and giving and self-deferential. The last example, verses 43 and following, we just call this, who do you love? You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, here is where it's not simply a quotation from the Old Testament that Jesus starts with. You shall love your neighbor. Oh, that's easy. Leviticus 19, 18. Hate your enemy? Where's that? Well, no place 
particularly or specifically. Perhaps it's inferred by love that is limited to neighbor. After all, right before Jesus, or before God says, love your neighbor in Leviticus 19, he speaks of not bearing a grudge against any of the sons of your own people. In context, that's what neighbor means, which means outside of that, they're on their own. Regardless of exactly where hate your enemy comes from, the pattern has already been clearly established by now. Jesus just keeps taking the norms of the Old Testament expectations and elevating them and internalizing them for his kingdom people. Jesus is a new lawgiver, not a law explainer, not a law reminder, not a law clarifier, not a law preacher. He's a new lawgiver. That's why 2 Corinthians, which Melanie read for us earlier, is so powerful. Moses was good. Moses had glory. But Christ has come, and he's of such glory that the former has no, now, no longer any more glory. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 6 that as we bear one another's burdens in the church, we fulfill the law of Christ. Law of Christ. Who's he that he's got his own laws? Oh, he's the supreme lawgiver, that's who. Or how about how Matthew ends his gospel account? Telling his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Who's this guy to make it all about him and what he said? Well, he's the one. He's God in the flesh. He's the prophet to come, the prophet. He is Messiah. Now back to Matthew 5, just briefly as we cap off with this conclusion in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now perfect here doesn't mean batting a thousand. It doesn't mean never sinning. It means being complete and whole. Everything done with in integrity. And you say, oh good, it doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean sinless. Oh good. But then if you think about it a little longer, you'll say, oh shoot. It still means completeness, wholeness, everything done with integrity. Is that you? How'd you fare? with these six examples. How are you doing with anger and insults? How are you doing with lust? Or if you're currently in a good stage, maybe you want to put it in the past tense. How have you been with anger, insults, or lust? How have you been? How are you doing at being a person of your word or being selfless and humble and others oriented? 
How are you doing? How have you been doing at loving and praying for those who hate you? How are you doing at being a complete, whole, sold-out, kingdom-oriented, Jesus-focused follower of him? Perfect? Well, if you're like me, you'll correctly say, this isn't me. I didn't pass the test. And then we remember how Jesus began the Beatitudes, that this is for those who are poor in spirit. They got nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We remember not only the poverty of spirit that's required in verse 3, but also the hunger and thirst for righteousness in the middle of those beatitudes. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who know they don't have it and believe that God can give it. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And so we look to Jesus as our substitute righteousness. We remember his temptation in the wilderness when Satan came at him in every direction and he was victorious over Satan's temptations each time. We remember, we realize from our passage today that Jesus himself personifies and embodies the very things that he's teaching us to do. He supremely never spoke revengeful insults. He never swore falsely. He was literally slapped in the face and then crucified. And he didn't retaliate. He didn't defend himself. He loved his neighbor and his enemy by laying down his life for them and bearing the wrath of God in their place. Isaiah saw it long ago. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Or as Peter puts it in his first epistle, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. No religious leader or religious founder has ever done such a thing. No one could. And so we pray that you would today, if you haven't yet, come to believe this Jesus. Put your trust in this Jesus. Make him your own. Receive his all-perfect righteousness in exchange for your filthy rags, your hunger, and your poverty. He'll give it if you believe it. He'll give it to you if you call out to him. We pray today would be a day for that. And then Christian, 
just remember this. We don't need to stay only in poverty of spirit. We always know that's our standing before God apart from grace, poverty of spirit. But the Beatitudes moved on, right? And Jesus is giving his disciples teaching that on the one hand should drive them helpless and hopeless to the Savior who's the answer for these things and yet should also transform them. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that Jesus gives and and because of the nature of the new covenant that 2 Corinthians 3 spoke of, these heart-level, high-level expectations of Matthew 5 can actually start to comprise us, to represent us, to be found among us. So let's not let this high calling of Jesus drive us to despair or only make us thankful for his substitute righteousness. But in light of his substitute righteousness and all the promises and gifts that come in his death and resurrection, let us strive for a righteousness that exceeds the externals of the Pharisees and is lived out from the heart outward in this world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your marvelous word, Old Testament and new. And we thank you for a Savior at the center of it all and over every page. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel, for good news, and also for Jesus' example. But we also thank you, Lord, for giving the means by which we might begin to obey you begin to glorify you and begin to represent you in this world. Help us, Lord. Grow us, Lord. Make us more like you, Lord Jesus. May it be so as we behold the wondrous mystery of all that you've done and all that you are for us. Amen.